The following program, although edited for television, still may contain some objectionable material. The producers feel that alone should be enough to make you stay tuned to this channel. because I refuse to come back as a bug or as a rabbit. You know, you're a real up person. Come on, magic screen, come up with something. Dishes alone, I've got to wash and dry. The what, what? Dry, sir. Yes, I know it is. But it's not going to last, Mrs. Purifoy. Do you hear that sound? What? Electricity. Static electricity. Well, I still think it isn't enough. Oh, it's more than I'm enough. I'm telling you straight, Mr. Collins, it ain't. I don't believe that anybody feels the way I do about you. Hello, listener. This is Tim, and you're listening to Music for Films, the underground film podcast. And I'm joined in a booth in rural Scotland by film historian Shruti Nguyen-Swami. Hello, Shruti. Hello. Shruti, there are many things that I would like to say to you, but I don't know how. We've made quite a few of these box set lockdown versions of the programme where we look at a couple of films with a sort of tangential connection and that you may want an alternative DVD commentary for. But perhaps a starting point to ask you in your busy academic life is have you asked yourself the question, what is a wonder wall? No. <laughs> well, uh, sort of on an obvious level, it's this song that we can hear the Mike Flowers Pops version of that was originally written by Noel Gallagher out of Oasis. And he said it was about his wife, Meg Matthews, who's now his ex-wife, and he's now said it's not about his ex-wife. Uh, the track was originally called Wishing Well, Oh. if you're oh. that interested. There are obviously various covers of it, including the Mike Flowers uh, pop one. In fact, the Mike Flowers version recently appeared in Netflix's Loki. In uh, the Loki lair, where all the variant Lokis were hanging out, you could hear it as kind of Muzak in the background. Okay. Tell them your story, Loki. <laughs> Me? Nobody wants to hear about that. I, I would, actually. Yeah, to um, me, the, the song is just uh, inextricably tied to memories of being at 
terrible college festivals in India where you were sure that the night would close with drunk students singing or trying to sing along with Wonderwall and the summer of 69. Yeah, it's kind of one of those kind of sing-along Britpop songs, isn't it? I mean, my associations with it are Creation Records, that Alan McGee from Creation Records. Oasis was a Creation Records band, uh, was around when I was hanging out in Smoky Dives in Brighton in my misspent youth. And uh, there's not much I can say about Alan McGee in that period, which wouldn't get libel lawyers interested. Oops. We're not here to talk about Oasis. No. We're here no, to we're talk not. about uh, where he got the idea from. But there's another very interesting cover of this. Uh, Leslie Ann Brandt's character in Lucifer, which you can also catch on Netflix, did a, did this cover of it. You're gonna be the one that saves me And after all You're my But really, the track and also its associations with this film, Wonderwall, directed by Joe Massa, are kind of an obscure, psychedelic treat, I think we can say. Like a lot of the things we've done, these lockdown versions of the show about, uh, it's not a great film, is it, Wonderwall? No, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's got this hook in it, which is George Harrison did a soundtrack album and these pieces of Indian music occur in it. And uh, that is interesting. Yes. So we're going to mainly talk about that. And then we'll also talk about Joe Massett's other psychedelic film, Zachariah, which is an attempt to try and do one of these concert films, of course, in the late 60s, early 70s, if you went to a cinema for freaks and hippies you could see concert movies because you couldn't necessarily get to see Cream or Led sure. Zeppelin playing but you could see a movie of it. Zachariah's an attempt to do a combination really of a spaghetti western yes. with acid rock. Where does Zachariah fall with respect to Stop Making Sense? It's quite a way before but you're right in the Stop Making Sense the Talking Heads movie it's really the kind of apogee of that, yes, that phenomenon absolutely. of movies, of, of concerts. Yes. And that's a whole other yeah. podcast for another day because we love Stop Making oh, Sense, yes. don't we? Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about Parliament Funkadelic because, yeah. of course, the Brides of Funkenstein are in uh, that Talking Heads lineup. We're going to talk a little bit about Funkadelic in a minute. Sure. We should do that bit of the podcast that everyone does where we just kind of drop some pop culture references. I suppose we've done that by talking about Netflix. Marvel things on Netflix. Uh, we just talk about what we're doing uh, because everyone does. So, uh, Music for Films, the podcast, is connected to a long term project of mine, of ours, which is to put a interesting film alongside every tube stop on the London Underground map. I'm doing the Overground, uh, an example of which would be. Guess which film I've got at Brondesbury. Oh, no idea. In northwest London. I don't London. even know where Brondesbury is. Brondesbury is near to Kingsgate Road, which stood in for Marchmont Road in uh, Bloomsbury in the 2014 film Pride. Oh, 
okay, that's the, uh, the, the terrific film about uh, when the gay liberation people linked up with striking miners during yep. the miners' strike in the 80s. Uh, so that was the location for that sequence where you got to see the bustling little kind of gay community in Marchmont Street that existed in the 80s and, the, and uh, Kingsgate Road doubles up for that. Uh, if Brondesbury is also known for anything, it's also the Brondesbury tapes, which was a 1968 recording from the same year as Wonderwall. See what I did there? It all connects. Mm -hmm. In 1968, uh, an early iteration of King Crimson, Giles, Giles and Fripp, featuring Judy Dribble, uh, recorded this delightful track. the straight man to the late man where have you been i've been here and i've been there and i've been in between mm. when gay people in london and elsewhere were somewhat out of the closet but still a little bit in it as well king crimson actually had a little gay following this is the case with several early heavy metal bands or heavy metal adjacent bands as i think king crimson is of course, the most famous example of this is Judas Priest. Oh, of course, yes. Because the lead single yes, Judas Priest absolutely. came out on MTV. And, yes. And people were picking this up in the 70s. Uh, so there's, there's always been that kind of gay metal crossover. And it's interesting for the choice of music I've made for this podcast. Because I've tried to sort of lay it on with the lush music and nice music choices. Because we haven't made one at least for, for a couple of now. months now. It's interesting, there's a sort of early heavy metal connection as well, yeah. which ties in with the psychedelia and the Indian stuff we're going to talk about. Yeah, especially interesting uh, considering the current uh, conversations about uh, homophobia in hip-hop. Yeah, maybe Naz, what's just ha uh, happened at Lollapalooza. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, it, it, always, it keeps coming around, doesn't it, that you have these these musical forms which are quite open to yes. all kinds of uh, followings and fandoms and then as people acquire more money and status then all the toxic masculinity and what have you sort of creeps in. It's interesting how these cycles kind of yes. keep repeating in music. That is kind of really what we're about as music for films. We talk about music and films and music for films which have kind of shaped culture and the, the interesting connections between things that you, that you may not necessarily have thought of. Yes. And while we've been in lockdown, hopefully we're coming out of lockdown like everyone else fairly soon. 
because we're making this in August 2021. All the other shows we've made over the last year or two, while we've not really been able to go out, have been what we call this kind of box set format, where we take a couple of films that you may not have heard of, which you might like a kind of alternative DVD commentary yes. to, and try and sort of show some of these connections we made a box set about the Andromeda Strain and um, the film of the Year of the Plague, the Gabriel Garcia Marquez Mexican film. We've made various of these podcasts about influences on Batman as well. And I think we're going to do one more of these. We've talked about doing a, a, a kind of Arthur yes. marathon where we'll look at all six Arthur, Arthur films. across cultures. There's obviously three English versions, but there are three Indian versions as well. So I guess we'll talk about them. Maybe we'll do it at Christmas. Uh, at some point. Because <laughs> we also take months to research these things and make all the music choices and things. So we're going to sort of do that as our kind of... Um, Farewell to 2021. Yes, our sort of bit, our victory lap. I don't know what to do about the podcast after that because I kind of feel like I think podcasting's sort of a debased medium in a lot of ways. I mean, this used to be a radio program and we've carried on making it because we had the SoundCloud and we've got the equipment to make it at home. I feel a little bit kind of sullied by the fact that now every stand-up comedian's got a podcast and they're all basically the same and I don't want to kind of add another shoddily produced podcast into the giant bin of podcast content. Uh, I mean, one of the things I've thought about is to kind of go back to doing uh, field recordings and street sounds. I think I might go back to places in London once we can go to London and go outdoors uh, and try and visit some of the places that the films on the map are about and do something similar for Glasgow. I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll keep making them. Maybe we'll just we'll move on. Because, I mean, we're both busy doing other stuff. Yeah. On which note, Shruti Narayanswami, you have an article in Film History. Yes, I do. Tell us about that. Oh, uh, well, it's a, it's a very academic -y. It's a, it's a you know, double-blind peer-reviewed article. Film History is a, is a great journal. And uh, this was based on... Uh, the first chapter of my thesis, which your linked, PhD thesis, yes, which linked um, early healthcare for women in colonial India to the origins of cinema. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, um, I don't think this is—it's not exactly a light tea time read. But if there are any listeners who would be curious enough to read it. Uh, send me an email. Yeah. And I'll send you the PDF. What's a good email to email you about? Uh, Shruti.swami at gmail.com. That's easy enough to remember. Uh, if you've got an academic sign-in for yeah. an academic library like I have because I'm a student as well. You no, can, you can I can up. just, I, I've got the PDF ripped off. I can just send that to you. I mean, having uh, been intimately involved in editing your PhD thesis, it's an absolutely fascinating article and I think it's so interesting on a lot of fronts that are directly relevant to the lives that we've all been living for the last year or two. Yes, absolutely. It's not only to do with uh, women's role in the independence movement, I mean I'm paraphrasing your thesis at you now, but it's also to do with hygiene and concerns about people gathering in public spaces and then the relationship between movies and the movie industry 
yeah. what was the future of movies going to be. And it's 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 all kind of come round again, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Also, just how our our cities are organised um, from a public health perspective, and how some people are sort of get deliberately excluded from um, healthcare initiatives. Mm. Well, it's a very timely piece of scholarship, and one of the great things about making music for films has been seeing your academic career blossoming in this way, so long may it continue. So I've gone for quite lush music for this programme because we've got a lot of Indian music and lots of strings, Yes. and it's all very sort of resonant, so I've picked lots of lush, verdant, orchestral music, like this, which we're listening to now, which is the... Benign Genius of Tom Yobin. It's just delightful. It's called Berenbao. And actually, since this is a podcast, I'll just I'll stop talking. Let's just listen to it for sure. a bit.
that's Journey in Satchitananda, Alice Coltrane on the saxophone, Pharaoh Saunders, Cecil McBee on bass, Tulsi on tambura, Vishnu Wood on oud, Majid Shabazz on the bells and tambourine, and Rashid Ali on drums. Uh, one of my favourite musical tracks of all time. From joke. that miracle year, 1971, when so many amazing albums, Carol King's Tapestry, Joni's Blue, I mean the list goes on. Yes. But uh, we can we can add to that list of amazing albums by amazing uh, women musicians, songwriters, composers. Alice Coltrane and this album. And it kind of connects with what we're talking about with Wonderwall and George Harrison's Wonderwall yes, music very album. Much so. Because uh, after the very sad death of Alice's husband, John Coltrane. We will not need to explain to this no. as who John Coltrane was the same way that you wouldn't need to explain who Bach or Mozart was. Yes. Uh, but after John's very sad death, she took refuge in two Indian gurus, Guru Swami Satchidananda, and then after that, uh, I'm afraid to say, uh, Satchisai Baba. Oh dear. Yes. Are we going to get into kind of um, which gurus are in or out? Probably out of our scope just now. It's another whole podcast, isn't it? Really? Yeah, but you know, lo- lots of people were taken in by uh, Sai Baba. So, I suppose for pe- for listeners who don't know which guru is which, you probably recognise him because he's the one who looks like he's in the Jackson Five with the big afro yep. and the orange robes. Uh, I mean, funny enough, I long before I knew you, I ended up going to his ashram oh in Putta Party yeah, that, well, near Bangalore. Good, that needs to be a whole episode. Another story for another itself. day. Well, people also recognise him probably also from uh, packets of incense. That's right, so yeah. If you've ever stepped into a crystal shop or an incense shop in the UK, you will see um, his brand, Incense. A lot of celebrities, a lot of rich people uh, found some kind of spiritual solace in his teachings. Of course, he's regarded by his followers as a reincarnation of Shruti Sai Baba, who of... Are we going to get into this? I think to explain it to listeners, if you go to India, you're used to seeing images of living figures who are kind of either in living memory or just on the outside of it. And I think the main ones, at least as a non-Hindu outsider, the, the people you see the most often are Ambedkar, who's not, strictly speaking, a spiritual leader, he's a politician, but obviously he's regarded by Dalits and and lower castes being almost like a guru in some ways. Swami Vivekananda? Yep. He's a very important sort of Edwardian-era guru, uh, founder of the World Council of Faiths, very influential on the West's attitude towards Hinduism because he spent a lot of time in America and had a lot of rich American followers. And Shruti Sai Baba, who people may recognise he's uh, an old man with a beard with a headscarf and interestingly among famous gurus nobody really seems to have a bad word to say about no, him. No, I think of him as the uh, OG and Sai Baba as the pale charlatan imitation. So Alice Coltrane took refuge in him but she seemed to kind of get out, get out of that in the nick of time and eventually became a What's the female term for a, a swami? Is it a, a swamini? Yeah, swamini, I would say, but um, yeah, it's not really a term you hear often. But she became a kind of spiritual teacher, and to her family and her own students, she stopped recording 
Uh, she didn't bring out many albums in the last couple of years of her life, but she still composed and performed, but she was a private composer and musician, so if you were in her inner circle or you were studying under her, you could uh, listen to her compositions and, and her music. But she, she wasn't really making music for the general public, she was making it much more for her, her students, yes. her immediate followers, which of course is a much more Indian yes, system. Absolutely. There's another great track which kind of links in with our interests on music for films on that album, uh, which is the last track, uh, Isis and Osiris. To my inexpert ear, that sounds like the Mission Impossible music in there it's as well. It's definitely in there. So it's interesting that kind of there's that link to Indian music yes. with spy-fi as well, because they both were cool and hip in the yes. 60s. Yes, well, that, yeah, I think that's it. They both were kind of around yeah, at the same time. Yeah, they're just sort of like, oh, that's a bit weird and exotic, but it's cool. We know it's cool. We don't quite get it, but it's cool. And it's interesting that you make that point about how Indian music was just kind of there in the mix in psychedelia. We, we started watching uh, Cosmo Fielding Mellon's documentary from a couple of years ago, The Sunshine Makers, which is about Tim Scully and Nick Sand, the two American guys who made the first kind of big batch of LSD that was then purchased in bulk by Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA's of chief scientist. It was in the kind of bit of that when they were talking about when they were first taking LSD with Timothy Leary that sequence starts with a bit of Indian music yes it was early 1965 and it wasn't that easy to find yet I found a fellow in San Francisco who had some built a fire in the fireplace and took it in the evening. I was kind of a wild kid. I grew up on the streets of New York. My first experience with taking acid changed everything. LSD's from Switzerland. Yes. It's not from India. No. So actually, it would make more sense for us to automatically associate the kind of LSD tripping bit of a documentary or a film with cuckoo clocks. Yes, and not with sun salutations in yes. the nude. Yes, that, that, the bit of that old man doing his yoga with his arse hanging out did leave you a little bit, <laughs> um, bit traumatised. Yeah, well. I apologise for that. We can link this article in the description for this show, wherever you're listening to this, but a lot of uh, really useful information about this um, album came uh, from georgeharrison.com uh, in a, a wonderful feature about Wonderwall soundtrack written by uh, Matt Hurwitz. Um, but it's really interesting because uh, Joe Massot, the director of Wonderwall, basically approached George Harrison and basically gave him sort of free reign. So uh, to quote from the article, plentiful with the psychedelia of its day, there was ample opportunity with this film for George to fill it with whatever musical whimsy he chose. 
what George liked, as fans had been discovering, was Indian music. A coat by uh, Roy Dyke, whose band the Remo Four provided the backing for the Western-themed pieces in the soundtrack. He said that Indian music was big at the time in London. Everyone was wearing Indian clothes and George was really into Indian sounds and wanted to turn a lot of people onto it. Uh, George himself said, uh, quote, I thought I'll give them an Indian music anthology and who knows, maybe a few hippies will get turned on to Indian music. Now this is something that I find really interesting is the way in which Indian music through George Harrison's intervention yes. as this hugely influential cultural figure by yes. 68, Indian music became almost like another drug that you could try. Yes, absolutely. It, it was another thing that you could sample, that yes. you could add to the yes. uh, expanding pharmacopoeia of yes, possibilities absolutely. that was and open. We would also be remiss to not mention Ananda Shankar. Absolutely. This is Dancing Drums, in fact. This is terrific. psychedelic uh, corridor was very much a two-way yes. thing that India was being influenced by the emerging rock celebrities mostly British guys also Indian culture I think was seen as a sort of ready-made uh, source for lots of aesthetic choices that we now connect with the counterculture and hippies uh, use of bright colors patterns free-flowing clothes, free -flowing clothes uh, a lot of the cultural accoutrement that we now associate with the 60s and the early 70s were sort of ready-made and there for the taking. So that all these influences are kind of there in Joe Massett's film. Should we uh, give a very brief synopsis of what the film is about? Yeah, so Joe Massett's an interesting guy. He made this film, he made Zachariah, which we're going to talk about in a, uh, in a while. But um, really very career. He also produced uh, a Latin album with Slim Gaylord called Siboney. <laughs> of, of course he did. And he also directed the 1984 Barry Sheen flick Space Riders, which is a, a basically a biking film. Barry Sheen's somebody who, I don't know how to explain him to somebody from India. Sure. He was big in the 80s, sure, basically. Okay, yeah, he raced bikes and he yeah. he fell off his bike and he oh. was mostly, he was like a kind of British, um, very low rent bionic man. Yeah, okay. In that he that. was held together with metal pins but didn't have any obvious superpowers sure. besides riding a bike, which he fell off sure. at high Let's, speed. Let's go. So Joe Massa made a film about that as well. And he made a Led Zeppelin uh, concert film. Interesting guy. The film essentially is about uh, a professor played by Jack McGowan, who you heard in the the bit at the start of the show. Yes. Um, it's got Irene Handel in as Mrs. Purefoy. Yep. Um, his cleaning lady. It's got Jane Birkin. Yes, yes, does. Sixties it girl yes. as as the sort of Dolly Bird model, model. next yes. door. Another interesting 
figure from British film history who's in this is Richard Wattis as Perkins, who's working for the professor doing his experiments. Night, Mr. Collins. Have a nice weekend. Have a nice weekend, Mrs. Chalmers. Richard Wattis will be recognised by certainly anyone my age who's grown up watching old black and white comedies uh, on BBC Two on Saturday afternoons because he's in absolutely everything. It's not that mind-blowing to see Irene Handel in Wonderwall in this very psychedelic, trippy film. I mean, it's very trippy, we should add. There's like a yes. lot of... There's kind of weird dream-like cut-up sequences. Yes. There's lots of dream sequences with kind of weird symbolism. Yes. There's lots of kind of almost liquid-like type effects. Yes. Um, well, shall we just say that uh, the, the basic premise is that uh, the Professor and Jane Burke in the model are neighbours and uh, the Professor uh, is... A peeping tom. A warrior. Yeah. yeah, a peeping tom who's... Drills a hole through the wall, hence yep, Wonder Wall. to ogle at uh, Jane Birkin. Pretty much, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, basically that's the film. film. I really handles not that out of place in a film which is that kind of fluid and, in a way, radical, because, of course, she's in Morgan A Suitable Case for Treatment that's as right. uh, Morgan's mum. Your dad used to love coming here. You know he wanted to shoot the royal family, abolish marriage and put everybody who'd been to public school in a chain gang. Yes, he was an idealist, your dad was. Yeah, I remember. There she is, uh, talking to David Warner as Morgan in Highgate Cemetery. So she's in some fairly out there stuff, but uh, Richard Wattis in this, wow. You don't expect that. So that's kind no. of one of the fun aspects. But um, it's not a great film, is it? No, but... Uh, visually very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, as a time capsule, it's quite interesting. The the art direction is done by the Dutch art collective The Fool. Oh, Who were very, very influential on the sort of psychedelic look of this sort of late phase of swinging London. And this will also interest you, or it may not. There are uncredited appearances in Wonderwall by Suki Potier, Amanda Lear, who later, of course, became Salvador Dali's muse, and Anita Pallenberg, mm. the um, the female Rolling Stone, who's also in performance, among other things. So it's uh, it's a film that's kind of chock a block with sixty six yes. girls as well. I mean, there's nothing else that's got Amanda Lear, Anita Pallenberg, and Jane Birkin no. in it. Amazing. I think all of us like a touch of elegance in our lives now and then. I certainly do. Somehow we feel embarrassed about doing things in a formal, magnificent way. Graciousness is always pleasant, and formality provides a refreshing break from everyday existence. There are many choices and a wide variety of personal preferences. You might also consider that wine is the greatest tranquilizer in the world. There is no doubt we have just prepared for an elegant dinner. It is a wonderful way of life. Vincent Price there with some public information about fine living. Advice, which I'm sure you'll agree, Shwetinarayan Swami, we would all do well to heed. 
a magnificent ambassador for fine living, Vincent Price. And speaking of excellent food, I was looking out of our window doing the washing up and thinking, have you seen the size of those plate mushrooms in the garden next door? Do you think they're poisonous? Well, I was going to say, and in light of uh, the topic in hand, kids, if you're thinking of going out and picking magic mushrooms, even mushroom experts can't really tell which mushrooms growing in the wild are toxic or not. So just leave them alone. Yeah, leave the mushrooms alone. Uh, now this rather neatly brings us on to a topic I wanted to discuss before we talk about the Indian musicians and the Indian music on Wonderwall, on George Harrison's album Wonderwall Music, which very importantly was the first album that the Beatles brought out as Apple Records. Uh, they started as they meant to go on by producing music that they were into themselves, which in George Harrison's case, of course, was his interest in Indian music. But I just wanted to kind of delve briefly into where their interest in Indian music came from, which then has this presence in the film Wonderwall. After watching the film, as we'll go on to talk about, a lot of it is not the 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 musical choices and the associations made between the music and what's happening in the film at certain points as someone from India is um, still sort of unexpected, perhaps discordant, but um, not within without its own internal logic. So the the music has a logical function with what's happening in the film, but it's still George Harrison's vision of using that music at particular points in the film. Um, I think I think that what you've described, which is Indian music in relation to psychedelia and the Beatles as a kind of vanguard exponents of Indian music as psychedelia, the way you describe that as discordant to Indian ears but serving its own kind of logical function yes, internally, yeah. that is, a, I think, a very also, appetite and good way of describing I, the whole... Uh, yes. Um, but also, I don't, I, it's not... Um, not every instant so if it is discordant there mm. are places where the use of a particular track makes a lot of sense um to me as someone whose culture the music is from um but i it's a it's an important distinction i think that it's, it doesn't seem to me uh i mean i'm not a musical expert i'm not an expert in hindustani classical music but um it's not to me being the music's not being used for the sake of weirdness it's or not just exoticism. Yes, um, it is serving its own function. It's the way that any composer composing for a film in mind would approach it. It's just uh, George Harrison composed the music for the film and what he wanted to use was Indian music. So he's just sort of composed the, the music for the film itself. It's not music picked willy-nilly and shoehorned into the film. The points where the Indian music in the Western filmmaking, the points where they overlap and the points where they kind of part ways, that's really what I'm interested in yes. discussing when we get into the, the tracks from the album. Yes. But before that, I think we have to preface that by talking about how the Beatles got into Indian music. Yes. So there's a timeline here, and the first point on this timeline is the film Help. 
I'd like to thank all of you for going to see the film. Spect a lot of you saw it more than once. I did. Did you? So did I. Thanks anyway, because it makes us very pleased, you know. We had a quiet time making it. <laughs> Actually, we didn't. We had a great time making it, and we're glad it turned out okay. The next one should be completely different. We start shooting it in February. This time, it's going to be in colour. It'll be a big laugh, we hope. Well, we... <laughs> uh, big laugh. Uh, uh... Yeah, Bean it'll be a big laugh. You and Megan? And we may see all of you soon. Hope so. Anyway, all the best in Happy New Year and a Happy Christmas. And here's Ringo. Thanks, George. So that was the Beatles talking about the film they were about to make. I'm quite interested by their Christmas messages because they tied in with the fact that uh, th this I did not know until recently. The Beatles did residencies, uh, mainly at the Hammersmith Apollo in 1963 and 1964, where it was almost like Panto. So they had a bill with lots of variety performers and comedians as well as other pop acts. Uh, and they did little skits. They did a Puss in Boots routine. Uh, they dressed up as Eskimos at one point, which apparently they didn't like doing very much. They complained about it afterwards. But it meant that when they went in to do their first film, the black and white film Hard Day's Night, they already were fairly used to doing skits and bits of kind of comic banter. They were quite used to all these kind of almost sort of cheeky chappy musical routines. But Help has got this added element, as George says, it's going to be in colour. They tried to make a Bond film, because of course, Bond was huge at this time in 65 and Help doesn't quite work I think of all the Beatles films Hard Day's Night, Yellow Submarine, Let It Be Help's the one which I think there's probably the least love for now that's mainly because of, of what we're going to inevitably have to talk about which is the Indian accents in that film it's quite curious as a film because it can't really work out what it is. Is it a spy caper? Is it a knockabout comedy? Is it an excuse to have lots of sequences of the Beatles recording uh, their songs and, and lip syncing to them? It's all of these things and sort of none of them at the same time. Sounds like a hot mess. It sounds like this. Your friend is in mortal danger. I can say no more. <laughs> so help had been through this quite complex evolution where initially it was going to be very much a Bond film. Ringo was going to be pursued by a hitman played by Peter Sellers, uh, who presumably was going to do it in his funny, goodness gracious me, Indian accent. The Beatles, of course, were huge fans of the goons and Peter Sellers, which was reciprocated, including when Peter Sellers did his delightful renditioning of A Hard Day's Night, but in the persona of Laurence Olivier as Richard III. It has been a hard day's night. <laughs> and I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. Oh, the other thing I should mention is that the original title for Help was going to be Eight Arms to Hold You, which was a reference to both the fact that there are four beetles, yes, therefore with eight arms, yes. but also the idea of a statue of a god with yes. multiple arms. Uh, it was written by 
Mark Bem and Charles Wood. Mark Bem's a very interesting guy with a very varied background. Uh, he wrote a Dr. Marboo's film. He's probably best known for a 1980 novel that's then the basis for a 1999 Ewan McGregor thriller called Eye of the Beholder. Is he any good? The film's no good. The, th the novel is quite well respected. So he went on to write this one noirish sort of pot boiler in 1980, which of its type I think is quite highly regarded. I was talking to Ros about Help and Hard Day's Night the other day on the phone. I said Mark Ben was one of the writers and she went, oh, he wrote Eye of the Beholder. So, I mean, Ros, Ros had heard of it. The only other respect in which this sort of relic of what help could have been with Peter Sellers in, apart from the fact that it became the Magic Christian, because of course Ringo and oh, Sellers course, did yes. do a movie yes. as a double act, but they did the Magic Christian instead, yes. which we made another programme about yes. uh, with Rosin. The only other sort of relic that remains of it uh, is this quintessential piece of music produced by, among others, uh, 80s remix maestro Arthur Baker. Eight Times to Hold You from the soundtrack of The Goonies, though it's not in the film very much. Wow, and I also why. wasn't released on, I think, the original soundtrack album, though there's a re-release that's got it on now. Arthur Baker, probably best known for producing New Order. And also, the Horn and Oats Go House album, Big Bamboom. Top of my playlist. How to say you're stuck in an 80s hellscape without saying you're stuck in an 80s hellscape. But from this not great situation of what now to our eyes is slightly problematic, slightly sort of racist uh, incorporation of Indian stuff into the Beatles film Help, which happened really because they had a series of ideas for the film, which just happened to have this kind of theme about a hitman and they thought, well, the hitman could be Indian because Peter can do that voice. What would an Indian hitman's motivation be? Maybe he's part of a Kali cult. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, that's why all these things are in there. But then out of it, you had George Harrison wandering up to the little stage in the set and picking up a sitar. And this is one of those occasions in culture where you can trace this huge divergent point in the culture of psychedelia's great long loving with Indian uh, classical music you can trace it to one moment which is literally recorded on film because it's in the movie Quite you, can, you, can, you, you can see the frame in fact we're going to look at it now because I've got a frame grab of it which I'll also put on the website it's that it's actually that instrument that, that I'm pointing at now yeah. and he picked that up and he liked the vibration of it and that just along with the fact that Satyajananda's yoga book was floating around. I think both George and John had that. But then we have to add the other element of why the Beatles were interested in Vedic philosophy, or certainly kind of philosophy emerging from India. John brought his own set of interests that came from his experimentation with LSD, his friendship with Timothy Leary, and specifically Timothy Leary's uh, book narrating the Tibetan Book of the Dead. 
which was one of the kind of key books of yes. psychedelia. And again, we can trace this to a specific moment. Paul and John went to the Indica bookshop looking for a, a book about Nietzsche, and they couldn't find that, but they did find Leary's Tibetan Book of the Dead book, which literally includes the line, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. Which is in Tomorrow Never Knows. That's a really good tip for my next um, LSD trip. Thank you very much. Thanks for that, Tim. Tomorrow Never Knows, which is uh, obviously a well-known Beatles track. It's the last track on Revolver. It's generally felt to be the first Beatles recording, which makes this connection to Indian yes. music overt because of its link to Tibetan Book of the Day. Yes. Uh, and it's been covered many times as well. Everyone's familiar with it, but perhaps not familiar with this demo version of it from one of the Beatles anthologies of their Abbey Road tapes, which has been released subsequently. Okay. very different from the oh, version yeah. of a track that is a beloved and yes. a familiar part of culture, really part of the cultural furniture. Uh, much more discordant, Yes. Uh, much harder to listen to, less radio friendly. Yes. You can see why it was they ultimately didn't go with that renditioning of it. But it's interesting that in early attempts to record it, uh, one of the things which is there from the start is John's altered vocal. Yes, yes. And that was a result of John saying to, jo to George Martin, the producer, would it be possible to reproduce the effect of Tibetan monks' overtone singing mm. from Tibetan Buddhism? And Martin's re response was, well, we could put your voice through the Leslie rotating speaker in a right. hammered organ. And that became not only a key part of the Beatles sound but that kind of drone sound yes. became a hallmark of yes. psychedelia as well that drone sound from Indian classical music that we mainly associate with uh, a harmonium I'm not quite sure it's the harmonium I think we might be talking about the drone the, of a sitar the, as well it's a it's a tambura okay which is basically um, a string instrument used in Hindustani as well as Carnatic classical music which are the two main schools of classical music in India and it's the instrument that um, you use also when you are doing riyas or practice it sort of helps you it's it's the instrument that helps you stay in tune it's like a metronome but yeah exactly exactly helps you stay yeah, on pitch. exactly yeah yeah oh so exactly. because of the fact that you don't have uh, sort of fixed points like rungs in a ladder 
in Indian classical musical forms. It's actually about pitch bending. Yes. You need to have something that locates yes, you. It's almost, exactly. also kind of like a magnetic north and a compass yes, as well. Yes, exactly. And wow. the, the, the Tanpura noise is what you hear in the more popular popularly known version of tomorrow never knows it's the it's the sound that you hear at the very start it's the tanpura and why do you think that is something that film directors have enjoyed uh, incorporating it's very atmospheric it's yeah very, it's very it, atmospheric it yes also it does it really easily doesn't it it's one instrument it's one instrument and it's also such a um common part of practicing or when you're composing music I understand that when you're even if you're composing popular music for a, in a studio or something it's very likely that the singer there would just have the tanpura to as a as an accompaniment I suppose the comparison with John Lennon's more psychedelic vocals is that sound of John's voice being put through the Leslie rotating yes. speaker became a hallmark a brand it became a way of kind of instantly saying okay this is the 60s yes we've moved on from the kind of cheeky chappy musical hard day's night little yes comedy routines yes. beatles now we're dealing with the beatles as serious yes. artists also you can hear the instrument very um, prominently in the backdrop of the alice coltrane track as well that's right yeah something i wanted to ask about before we delve more deeply into the Indian music on Wonderwall is the Tibetan influence on all of this. I've recently been watching a lot of sort of psychedelic spies type of documentaries uh, as part of research for making this. The, the Sunshine Makers we've already mentioned. I also saw the Errol Morris documentary about uh, Timothy Leary, My Psychedelic Love Story. Errol Morris also made that other series on Netflix about MK Ultra and CIA uh, Wormwood. Yes. A documentary I'd like to see, but I haven't been able to get hold of, though I think it's on Amazon Prime, we should watch it, which is Richard Bamer's documentary about David Lynch going to Rishikesh yeah. to study yeah. Transcendental Meditation. Yes. As somebody who, I mean, I won't, I won't talk here about my own quite long involvement with Tibet and Tibetan culture. Suffice it to say, long before I knew you, I had quite serious ambitions to be a Buddhist monk, and I lived at a Buddhist retreat centre uh, for a couple of years subsequently realised I was just depressed <laughs> um, but it was quite a useful interesting experience in, in some ways it is intriguing to me how much the origins of American intelligence agencies particularly CIA in the OSS after World War II and the quite serious scholastic study of Tibet do seem to overlap and then you can draw your own conclusions about what was going on with Tibet and the counterculture and LSD from that. Uh, was there some kind of design to that overlap? Or was it just that people who were trying to figure out how to do mind control, which was a real thing, unbelievably. It doesn't work, but there was a serious effort to try and do it. People who are interested in that kind of thing would also naturally be drawn towards Tibetan mysticism and they'd know people with money and kind of esoteric sets of interests and so 
inevitably the Beatles and various people would, would drift towards them. I mean, I, I don't know, and I think, you know, the only secrets are the secrets that keep themselves, is we'll never really know the truth to that. Um, it does interest me that one of the corroborating witnesses to the fact that Timothy Leary, the, you know, the guru of LSD in the 60s, didn't get his initial batch of LSD from the CIA's chief chemist, Sidney Gottlieb, uh, is Robert Thurman, father of film star Uma Thurman, but also an eminent academic and scholar of, of Tibet uh, and colleague of my good friend, now a retired Tibetan scholar, uh, Robbie Barnett. Why was a Tibetologist studying with Timothy Leary at that time and dropping acid, presumably? We, we just don't know. No. But it is the case that Robert Thurman founded Tibet House in Greenwich Village with your own, your very own David Lynch. I mean, there certainly are these overlaps, and I think you can find similar overlaps with, with John Lennon. Yes. And with the Beatles, that they were just kind of interested in kind of similar stuff. Yes. I'm sure there are lots of people who get a lot from meditation. I know just like in our own family, there are people who are quite serious practitioners of various meditation techniques they get a great deal from it it seems to make them very happy uh positive people so i'm not knocking the the interest in esoteric matters at all in fact quite the reverse i i would promote that but that particular form of it from way up in the himalayas it seems to be very much about the ego i mean i've also got to say that from a lot of quite serious vajrayana practitioners that i've known in my life they all seem to be people who are just so egotistical that they've pulled the wool over their own eyes. Where you end up with is what Peter Serafanovich rather brilliantly parodied uh, in this skit about John Lennon writing Imagine. I've got millions of pounds. I thought it was bloody big headed. I'm so brilliant. When I heard that, I was bloody furious. And I'm so glad I'm not poor. I'm so glad I'm not poor. So what did you think? Well, to be honest with you, I thought it was a little bit boastful. Hmm? What did you think, love? Oh, John, I thought it was just great. Benedict Wong there, of course, is Yoko. That is a very funny that bit. That is. But also, I think it's really quite painfully accurate. It's, it's so funny because it's so on the mark. And the fact that that was recorded before Gal Gadot and her oh, friends no, did no, this no. Oh, oh. monstrosity that you can hear as the, oh, as the yeah. music bed at the moment. Yeah. Anyway, so given that John went on to do, I think, actually quite a sort of brilliant through the front doors all guns blazing take on Eastern mysticism with a song like Instant Karma I mean I'm not an expert on the various forms of, of philosophy that began in India but my understanding is that the, the principle of karma is not what you do in this life will be visited back on you threefold or tenfold or whatever that's actually an idea from Western occult ideas and kind of 1920s witchcraft. It's not, that's not no. a thing in India, is it? How, do, how does karma actually work, well, if you had to kind of simplify it? I mean, I'm it? not an expert, as you know, um, but I think what karma actually means is that um, if you believe in reincarnation, 
which is very much a belief in in India and in Hinduism that what you do in your present life determines what form you will be reborn as in your next life and one of the reasons why I am not an expert nor do I wish to be is because um, the, the concept of karma and it's, it's deeply um, interlinked with casteism because yeah. of course there's the idea that if you've lived your literally your best life you will be born as a Brahmin in your next life which is you know the, the, the best birth you could have as opposed to being born as an animal or a Dalit so uh, deeply <laughs> problematic um, ideas that I have no time for but you, you are right that the, the sort of popularly accepted definition of karma is not yeah, that's not the right one. But I, I mean, this this may cause controversy, even in this room. But I quite like instant karma. Although John's got it wrong, that's not what karma no. is. Instant karma's not going to get you. It's not going to hit you in the head. No, it's not. But it fucking ought to. I mean, what I like is it's like this sort of Larry Scouse sure. blood going. Yeah, come on then. Come on then. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it also makes me think of uh, karma as some sort of sort of uh, instant ramen noodles. <laughs> you just just add yeah, water. <laughs> yeah, just add water. So what you ended up with was that Indian drone sound of the tambura and this kind of flavour of Indian music in acid rock, in, in Western pop music. It kind of gave people from all different kinds of backgrounds kind of permission to experiment and be free and do all sorts of things to the extent where you end up with the Indian influence on this track which will be recognisable to fans of the Sopranos.
So that's Vanilla Fudge doing their cover of You Keep Me Hanging On, originally recorded, of course, by Dinah Ross and the Supremes. Shruti, do you remember where you saw this in The Sopranos? I actually don't. It's interesting, isn't it? So that's the music that plays when Phil Leotardo is rubbed out in the last episode. I actually haven't seen the last season of Sopranos oh, yet. Yes, there you are. I started watching Sopranos. Um, I, I don't feel ashamed admitting on the front. I was stealing the episodes on Torrent back in India and I had a very slow internet connection so it was a huge slog to download all the episodes of The Sopranos and I just didn't manage to get around to watching the last season and now because it's been so long since I've seen the show I'll have to start from scratch but The Sopranos is so grim so you've seen that and second to last season with all the dream sequences yes, where everyone went yes, oh yes. David Chase has lost it yep 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 and as someone who's now much older a bit more weary with the worries of the world the Sopranos is so heavy duty that I don't think I have it in me <laughs> to uh, start the whole show again. Well, it gets grimmer. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it does. So I think that part of the reason why people don't necessarily immediately connect Vanilla Fudge's cover of You Keep Me Hanging On with The Sopranos is because that last Sopranos episode ends with Journey's Don't Stop Believing, yes. which really became the kind of soundtrack of that year yes uh well i'm sorry for spoiling the end of oh a, no i i know i know how a, it ends a show I that just ended don't, 14 I years just ago i don't know how it gets gets there so part of the reason why david chase probably scored a character's death with that track was because vanilla fudge it is generally known were managed by the lucchese crime family oh they were a mafia oh. psychedelic band oh. I mean, this is another podcast for another day, but, oh, but wow. the American Mafia, particularly the five families in New York, have been hugely formative oh, to yes. all kinds of countercultures, yes. avant-garde art, various forms of transgressive culture. Uh, we too easily forget that the Stonewall Bar, the bar around which the protests were centred, was a mob bar because nobody else was catering to trans people in that part of New York, and so... You know, if, yeah. if there's a need and there's profits... The, the mafia's there. And that was true of Psychedelia as well. But Vanilla Fudge is such an interesting band in addition to their well-known mafia connection. Uh, now, this may surprise you. An act that we are both hugely devoted to, the figurehead of which has openly credited Vanilla Fudge of having, as having been a huge influence on their sound, is Parliament Funkadelic. Oh, of course. They played a couple of gigs with Vanilla Fudge and they heard their music played back through Vanilla Fudge's massive Stax amplifiers. Yes. And when they got that acid rock amplification on top of their particular kind of rhythm and blues, that's when they got what became the Funkadelic sound. The transition from Parliament to Funkadelic really is Parliament plus Vanilla Fudge's really sound system equals this.
to them and you just feel a little bit cooler than you did before. Free your mind yeah. and your ass will follow. <laughs> so it's interesting how the Indian influence on that period of rock music, maybe it didn't kind of stick around as some sort of uh, scholarly and informed appreciation of Indian culture or, or classical music, but it, it kind of opened the door for all sorts of things. It certainly opened the door for heavy metal. Um, Deep Purple, very strongly influenced yes. by that take on kind of Indian influenced chords and pitch bending, and then Deep Purple are kind of one of the uh, metal bands, yes. really. But also Black Hippies, Parliament Funkadelic, it all flows from there. So maybe Indian music that George Harrison was turning people onto wasn't literally a drug in the same way that Magic Mushrooms or LSD might have been. But in a way, it kind of was an acoustic yes. drug. It did turn people on to, to something. And I think trying to figure out what, what that is is really what we're going to end on, on talking about, is to really try and pin that down. Because that's what really interests me, is where those two cultures are meeting, yes. what is actually happening. What really interests me about George Harrison's choice after Joe Massett had approached him and said, would you like to do the music for this film I'm making, Wonderwall? And frankly, George Harrison could have delivered. He could have done anything, really. Pretty much. Yeah. And let's also face it, Joe Massett asked George Harrison, not because Joe Massett had a great interest in Indian music, it was a Beatle, and he yeah, just wanted the I mean, Beatle yeah. to have done the music for his film so people would watch yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And it worked. Yeah, in Harrison's own words, he didn't sort of go... Oh, it's a it's a film that we want sort of with targeting sort of the hippie demographic, so they like something a bit sort of weird and exotic. He liked Indian music, that's what he was into at the time, and he thought, okay, well, if people are going to pay attention to this film because I'm I'm composing the music, this is what I want to this is what I want to present to them. I think this is great and I want to introduce this music to more people so I'm just going to do this. And it's worth remembering that all of this recording for Wonderwall happened before the Beatles went to Rishikesh, yes. before the Beatles involvement with the Maharishi, Mahesh yes. Yogi and the Transcendental Meditation Movement. This predates all of that yes. by about 18 months. Yes. There's a very engaging documentary that we watched by Paul Saltzman uh, meeting the Beatles in, in India yes. about the Beatles period in Rishikesh uh, which I think represents the transcendental meditation movement and Rishikesh as a pretty positive thing yeah. I mean I think although there is obviously a lot of uh, ill feeling towards the Maharishi Sexy Sadie famously is about the Maharishi and I think Lennon took exception to the Maharishi he tried it on with Mia Farrow basically and Mia Farrow obviously has had and that's another whole podcast isn't it she's had a very complex relationship yes. with men over the years and with uh, boundaries shall we say but although there are those kind of um, misgivings about the Maharishi's treatment of his female devotees generally speaking people seem to have not great things to say about him but not not universally negative things either What's your feeling about transcendental meditation? Again, as a kind of thing that um, celebrities like David Lynch are into. My impression is that with just generally meditation um, itself, uh, I know people who benefit a lot from it. 
I don't really get it. I've tried meditation myself. It doesn't work for me because it's just a bit, I'm not a fan of sort of sitting down um, in one place. It's just too still for me. But, you know, the people who've spend a lot of time in it, spend, invest a lot of their energy into it, seem to get a lot out of it. So, I mean, it's worth telling our listeners that, I mean, you're quite a enthusiastic athlete you oh, athlete i think might be an overstatement you, yeah i mean but... you were you had a podium finish in a marathon in yeah, Dubai. i yeah, mean technically yeah. actually you are an athlete and you're certainly very dedicated to uh your weightlifting and other yeah. exercise yeah. you're doing at the moment but I also that's understand kind of that. yeah exactly but i also understand that it's not for everyone so it's just sort of uh, as long as people can find their own thing and if it brings positivity to them um and sort of gives them something to look forward to go for it my take on it is very much what you and i discussed when we went to where i used to live in scotland a meditation retreat and it's got this it wasn't there when i lived there it's got this massive gold buddha mm-hmm. statue mm-hmm. um and not something you expect to find in the scottish borders and it's like a kind of it's got a kind of culty feel mm-hmm. now which wasn't there when i lived there mm-hmm. And it's kind of a bit of a kind of Orientalist Disneyland mm. for white mm. hippies. And by white hippies, I mean white hippies with a bit of money yeah. who want to do a kind of retreat. And that's their way of dealing with their problems. And of course, it's that statue which my former landlord was stabbed in the chest by the artist of the yes. statue oh, and killed oh. in an argument over money. Love and peace. <sighs> I mean, there's all kinds of problems yeah. to do with... Eastern mysticism, the 60s, psychedelic spies, it's Charles Manson. It it all gets quite nasty. But my attitude anyway, I think I'm kind of mirroring what you were saying. Yes, there's all this problematic stuff, but that's always there. And people seem to get something positive from this. It's not for me, but they seem to get something from it. So fair play to them. If David Lynch for his art, for his life, if he gets something yeah, out of transcendental meditation. TM seems to be a very big part of his life. He doesn't, his interest in it is not casual. I think George Harrison's interest in, in transcendental meditation, David Lynch's interest in it, many other famous yes. people we can think of, they are quite sincere in their interest. And that's fair enough, in my view. I'm yeah. not going to try and call them out on it nope. because they weren't born in India or they they haven't lived up a hill in Tibet for 20 years. I think that kind of one-upmanship about how our cultures interact with each other is not terribly helpful because it closes that two-way door. So this is a sequence from Paul Saltzman's documentary Meeting the Beatles in India where he goes back to the EMI uh, recording studio in Mumbai. I looked up where it is on the map it's the University Insurance Building on Sephiroth's Shah Mehta Road, which I think is near that little kind Hornament of oval circle. Hornament yeah. circle. Yeah, and that's quite a nice part of Bombay, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but the building is in terrible. Yeah, it's not a terrible state of disrepair. So he goes back there with the uh, British Beatles historian Mark Lewison, and then he talks to one of the wonderful Indian musicians he recorded on Wonderwall. The first time the Beatles came to India was uh, July 1966. Mm-hmm. But prior to Rishikesh, which was February 68, George Harrison made his next trip here to record the soundtrack for a film called Wonderwall. Mm-hmm. And George at that point was very much into Indian music, deeply into it. 
he booked time at the HMV studio in Bombay and that's exactly where we are now and in fact if you look up there do you see that oh. his master's voice and they recorded here for five days right and that was the inner light was one of them was it one of them is what became the inner light yeah he didn't do the vocals that was done back in London but the instrumentation was done here at this studio so a Beatles b-side everyone thinks the Beatles recorded only at Abbey Road but one of the Beatles singles the b-side was recorded here in Bombay cool and and that was the one that Harry Prashad Shorazia played the flute on is that right that's right on the inner light yes tell me about your friendship with George I cannot explain through my words, but the love and the emotional uh, uh, friendship and uh, the music uh, he used to play, and we used to enjoy playing together. He was a saint, musical saint. And do you remember what you played for the inner light? It's a long time back, <laughs> and I'm getting old, so it is difficult to... musician who you can hear there talking to Paul Saltzman in his, I think, very good documentary yes. is Hari Prasad Charalsia. Shruti, you have a lovely story about running into his students. Uh, not running into his students, I don't know how, but I had the supreme privilege of listening to him in concert. Life. Oh wow! Yeah, this was when um, I was doing my um, MBA and we were all living in a hostel and um, uh, suddenly, one day we heard that Pandit Hari Prasachorasiya himself, it's like someone telling you, oh, the box, box playing in the garden, if you want to just drop in. Yeah, Prince is outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. do you just want to... Um, He's got his harmonica. Yeah, so we just heard that he was going to be um, this lovely out, outdoors amphitheatre in uh, Vashi in Navi, Mumbai, where my college was and we heard that he was going to just be there with some students doing a little concert uh it was at like 5 a.m or something ridiculous wow. like that so we just sort of woke up and it was free there were a, a few people there we all went to the auditorium and uh, harry prasad chorasia and his uh, students who i believe live with him in an ashram very much where, like alice culture absolutely yeah um and a lot of the students were um, white. So a lot of uh, white students also study with him. And they just put on a free um, concert then and there. And it was just, it was a beautiful morning in Navi Mumbai. And the the sun was just rising. And they were all dressed in um, white kurtas and pajamas. So it was, it was as if we had stumbled into a, a forest where some sort of angels had descended and luminous were, beings yeah some luminous beings were just sort of and it was some of the most beautiful music i've ever heard in my entire life there's a there's a very strong element of all of our kind of cliches about indian music about mysticism about 
opening the doors of perception, opening your third eye. There are a lot of cliches and they're all true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly had one of those experiences that morning. So, um, yeah, it was just fantastic sort of seeing his name crop up when we were looking into the Wonderwall Yeah, you soundtrack. actually see Squeed. Yeah, like I did. Like a proper fan Yeah, girl. I did, yeah. Yeah, and um, so the, the track they are talking about in that clip, Inner Light, is also really interesting because um, in the sort of extended cut of the song, they've actually left in uh, George Harrison sort of interacting with the Indian musicians. Just the second one you joined. Second one, okay. Yes, yes. I followed. Because the singing, just yes, yes. the singing goes da 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 and stops. And, then you and I think a lot of these musicians didn't speak in English, so it's really interesting when you listen to the extended cut of the song. You can actually just hear how they were all managing to communicate with each other, so you can hear sort of Harrison going, yeah, but I want that to be like da-da-da-da-da instead of da-da-da. And, and then you can hear the Indian musicians speak to themselves. They're still musicians. Yeah, in... Um, in Hindi and going, oh, okay, that's what he wants. Yeah, okay, let's try that. from that extended track of um, being light it's very similar to the vibe one gets from how the musicians on Wonderwall music and I have to say I think people in India generally feel towards George Harrison people who are looking for a skirmish in the culture wars sadly will have to look elsewhere because it just seems as though George Harrison seemed to be genuinely quite well disposed and fairly respectful to the talent and skill of Indian musicians and equally Indian musicians seem to quite like George Harrison's sort of understated Yeah, I mean, it just, um, <clears throat> he, I don't think he went in there sort of uh, going, okay, this is exactly what I want to do and you will just play this. From what I understand, he um, uh, did a couple of uh, spotting sessions, as I understand is the term, uh, at Twickenham Studios when he began the process of composing for the film and he just made notes of various points for which he wanted to compose something and then he just you know went to Mumbai and sort of gave them a general idea of what they wanted and they would play something and it was very much a sort of back and forth. Part of the, it's the tension in Wonderwall which really interests me the film is between 
the uh, dotty and frankly all over the place visuals. Yes. Acting, <laughs> yes. plot, basically yeah. everything. Basically about everything. The film. Yes. And then this very meticulous, very emotionally attuned, careful, thoughtful, quite sensitive Indian music. Um, it creates this tension within the film between things that are just all over the place and kind of yes. out there but it kind of grounds it in something yes. rather like you're saying the um the tambura acts as a kind of tonal metronome that yes. when you're bending pitches all over the place it's good to have earth it's good to have yes. a way of grounding yourself in well where does the pitch yes start um i wonder if the new music in wonderwall doesn't give it a certain kind of meter yeah. and structure because it's got this beautiful but very considered music in it and George Harrison seems to have approached recording these tracks as a student as somebody who yes has a very positive feeling towards the music and the musicians and he wants to learn yes and he's he's really deferring to their their skill and their talent and just letting them yes do what they're good at and he's just kind of there recording yeah, it and much. saying could you do a bit more like this yeah. lads yeah and because he's a nice guy they're giving him what he wants. Yeah, and you can you can literally hear that process going on in um, the recording of Inner Light. So how do the tracks stand up, and how do the tracks relate to their use in the film? Because as somebody who obviously has been to India with you, and you know Indian culture is part of our lives because you're from there. And when I watch the film, I feel completely adrift in terms of where the music's coming from. Um, what the meaning of it may be. I mean, that's, I think, partly why I wanted to make this part of our Joe Massett double bill was, really, I'm watching a completely different film from you because you're listening to the music and you're immediately yes, getting what the, film, what the music refers yes. to. Whereas for me, it's some lovely music. Yeah. So educate me. School oh, me. Um, well, so I believe the timeline was that um, Joe Massa basically, yeah, approached Harrison, said, do whatever you want. He wanted to uh, use Indian music. Um, so he compiled an hour's worth of music cues by basically just going through the film at Twickenham Studios and going, OK, this is where I think... Um, so that's that I think is really interesting that it wasn't just that he had composed some stuff and they just sort of slotted that into the film um, at points. It's not kind of cut and paste thing. No. Not no. like that, that uh, Eight Arms to Hold You Goon Squad yes. track where yeah. it's just like, uh, we need a track where there's a goldfish yeah. in the Goonies. Yeah. So Let's get Arthur Baker well. to kind yeah. of make some yeah. electronic dance music. Yeah. But it worked the other way around that he knew he had watched the film and he wanted to score for specific scenes and so then that sort of it seems to have guided the uh, process of uh, composing so it was someone called John Barnum who um, had met George in 1966 while John Barnum was working as an assistant for Ravi Shankar um, and that's how Ravi that's Shankar, the, the Shankar and George Harrison met yeah. and they became friends and uh, uh, Shankar was teaching um, Harrison had to play the sitar. So the first recording sessions uh, took place in Delane Lear Studios in London, uh, featuring the Sarod master Ashish Khan. So Sarod is another uh, string instrument, and the tabla player Mahapurush Mishra, who were both in London to record some music anyway, 
and uh, I understand that George had met Ashish Khan before in Varanasi. So, because um, he'd yeah. already been to India on yeah. his own before yeah. they went to Rishikesh, yeah, absolutely after recording, yeah, Wonderwall, yeah, and they just sort of also one of the tracks from the uh, Wonderwall soundtrack, which is certainly my favorite track, which is just tabla and pakhavaj. So tabla is of course the instrument, and the pakhavaj is another um, percussion instrument, it's basically a two-sided drum. So that was just Mishra and Khan sort of playing extempore. They just sort of played it impromptu and it was recorded and that was part of the soundtrack. Absolutely delightful. Yeah, I, I absolutely love Tabla and Pakavaj. The other songs are more sort of, um, the, the, the way that they're titled um, rely a more sort of direct connection to the film itself. So there is a um, song which is called Love Scene, which is in love scene. The, the love scene. So um, here's what, um, this is what I found really interesting. So um, Ashish Khan, one of the musicians, whose um, uh, grandfather, who was also a renowned Hindustani classical musician. So Khan suggested that because it was a love scene, he could use one of the um, ragas created by his grandfather, which would be perfect. So the raga is called Moj Kamaj, which Ashish Khan thought was romantic so it would be a good um, fit but here's what's unusual so George asked him to double track himself which is very unusual for uh, an Indian musician definitely very unusual for Hindustani classical music so um, Khan played the raga and then sort of double tracked himself and sort of filled in the gaps so that's really um, interesting. That's it's a it's a proper sort of pure Hindustani classical rag, but then a sort of unconventional technique was applied to it when it was um, composed for the film. That's really interesting. Double tracking as a recording technique had been part of rock and roll since at least Buddy Holly and the Crickets. I think they were the first top billing act that really got to grips with the recording process and didn't just let the engineers do it. But of course the Beatles producer, George Martin, very much in collaboration with the Beatles, was a huge innovator uh, in all these techniques. Double tracking was something that the Beatles were probably quite used to, but it's really interesting that it was not not a common thing in recording Indian classical music or film music. I yeah. hadn't thought of that. I, I didn't know that either. Wow. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so there's another uh, song in the in the soundtrack which also is derived from something that's just it's it's a it's a take on a raga basically which is the track called microbes is this the scene where we're yeah, just seeing them into the microscope, into the microscope? Yeah. um so when we watched the film i was like okay that's a 
because I, as as someone from the culture, I wouldn't associate a a um, sort of fairly sort of scientific, groovy sort of seeing microbes on the screen kind of scene to be scored with um, a Hindustani classical song, but it was. Um, so the raga itself is called uh, Darbari Kannada, uh, which actually the rag originated in Carnatic music, which is from South India, whereas Hindustani classical music is traditionally associated with the north of India. So it was called the Kannada because it came from Carnatic music and um, the adaptation of that rag into Hindustani classical music was actually done in the 16th century wow. by Emperor Akbar's renowned um, composer who was part of his court, who was Tan Sen. Oh, I've actually heard yeah, of Tan Sen. there you yeah. go. So Tan Sen adapted this Carnatic rag for um, the Hindustani classical style of music. Uh, and because he was part of the court, that's why the rag came to be known Darbari Kannada, because Darbar is court. Oh, so it's like the kind of Indian equivalent of something by Thomas Towers. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, for some reason, uh, George thought that that would be a groovy uh, song to play for looking at some microbes on screen. It's not really clear what Joe Massett's going for with that bit with the microscope. One gets the impression that it's basically a drugs film. Uh, yes. It's sort of reflecting the psychedelic experience of the people that have made the movie yes but they can't actually make a film no. about drugs so you do your best to uh, simulate the sensations and um well so the microscope bit seems to be swapping a kind of drugs type of portal yes into a, a new consciousness yes with a sex yes portal because there's obviously yes. a this, I mean, this is a psychedelic film. You can't read too much into it. But no. there, there seems to be some kind of conceptual superimposition of what he's seeing through the microscope and the microbes. Yes. And then what he sees through yes. his peephole in the Wonder Wall. Yes. If you wanted to read even more into it, you could argue that it's there's something there about some commentary about um, a whole generation of people um, who were older in that period who had just gotten through the uh, war it must be wild looking at much younger people hippies um, sort of uh, this huge cultural reset and pants. not really understanding what's going on but I suppose it's the film also sort of saying that like the um, old scientists sort of uh, living vicariously through these through Jane Birkin through Jane Birkin I think it is saying that yeah. yeah so the message of it seems to be not turn on tune in drop out so much as turn on tune in spy on your neighbour in her knickers yeah yeah but um, so then that the raga on top of that it's more confusion really it's the most head scratchy bit of the film for me um, because if you just played that song to me without the visual and without if I hadn't known that this was part of the Wonderwall soundtrack I would go oh this must be in a Bollywood film or this was played at a, a state funeral for someone important in India oh, so it, it's, it's quite sort of funereal it's, it's almost well, like a dirge well it's it's funereal but also I think it's um 
what what threw me off was because the instrument that's prominent in that song which is another instrument that I gather George um, Harrison took a great fancy to um, alongside the sitar, which is the Shehnai. It's um, associated, um, and I, you don't have to be a Hindustani classical buff, because Shehnais are very commonly used in film songs, but also Shehnais are also present due to mark sort of momentous occasions. It's interesting because we are recording this on 15th August, which is India's Independence Day. Of course. Day. Happy Independence Day. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and uh, to all our Pakistani friends, happy Pakistan Independence Day, which was on the 14th of August. Ne- next time I come and visit either or both countries, I'll try to not stay for 170 sure. years. <laughs> um, but... Um, on the 15th of August in 1947, to mark India's independence, uh, there was a concert which was um, held at the um, Red Gate uh, and in, Delhi. in Delhi. And that was marked by uh, one of our most renowned uh, musicians, who was a um, Shehnai maestro, um, Ustad Bismillah Khan, playing the Shehnai to mark India's new journey. Um, as an independent nation. So Shehnai is a sort of, you know, for most South Asians, Shehnai is a link to grand occasions, either happy or very sad. So when it's sort of played so <laughs> in this scene... In Wonderwall, it's like the sort of celebratory moment before he discovers his libido. Yes. Trippy. Yeah. It's like... Um, it's like someone... Uh, playing Tchaikovsky in in a in a film where someone's cleaning out the toilet. Pretty sure that has happened. In yeah, several I'm, I'm, Ken Russell I'm films. sure. I'm sure it has. Pretty sure I've seen yeah, that. But very discordant. Wild. So, uh, what are the tracks from the Wonderwall music album stand out for you? Um, I also think the song "Gut Girvani," which is um, plays during the modelling scene um i understand that it's it's also um a, a hindustani classical raga again i don't m- know much about this but my um preliminary googling reveals that it's a, again very um traditionally considered to be a sad raga so i tried to find a couple of um indian film songs which have which were based on this raga and they all seem to be sad songs so again sort of seeing that juxtaposed against this sort of um um 60s modeling sort of sequence yes, very interesting that, that harrison and his musicians in this recording session at the hmb studio in mumbai that the choices they've made are puzzling to western and indian audiences but in different ways yeah there's a common experience of not quite knowing yes what the piece is getting at but then there are different experiences of befuddlement yeah absolutely and um uh, apparently the raga itself was made popular by the musicians Alauddin khan and uh, pandit ravi shankar so it was sort of their generation um of musicians who were practitioners of Hindustani classical music who made that raga sort of it came back in vogue and uh, George heard it he really liked it and then he played he requested Alauddin Khan one of these musicians to to um, 
play uh, in that particular song. There's also a kind of interesting LSD aspect of it, this as well, because Ken Kesey, who, with his electric Kool-Aid acid trip van, was the kind of Johnny Appleseed of LSD, certainly on America's West Coast. One of the things they were trying to, to create by having kind of mass freakouts and dosing lots of people with LSD was to try and bring about some kind of collective hallucination. So it was the idea that you could use psychedelic drugs to break out of the personal experience. And make it a sort of collective, communal experience. And that ran concurrently with a lot of other thinking in the counterculture, particularly from situationism, which again was about creating a kind of state of panic, in, in particularly in public spaces. Situationists typically would do things like filling a cinema foyer up with chairs, which just seems like, um, to be blunt, art students being arseholes because they could. And I'm sure there was a strong element of that. Sure. But underlying it, there was a fairly sort of, at least to their way of thinking, quite serious intellectual idea, which was that you could try and get out of all the kind of strictures of, of the old thinking yes. and bring about some kind of new thinking, whether it was through situationist stunts yes. or whether it was through using psychedelic drugs and it, without really meaning to in a way George Harrison's kind of done a little kind of yeah, experiment absolutely. with this yeah, as well and, uh, you know I it was just um I'm I don't want to pretend I understand all of his um musical choices in relation to to the film itself but um certainly as someone who's from India but I'm not you know particularly well versed in um, Hindustani classical music or anything of that sort, but it's very interesting to see someone else who's not from the culture there take um, and the, the eyes and ears that they've brought to this very old, very traditional music that's still very much alive. I don't want to make it sound like it's, you know, obscure or um, people don't listen to it or, um, you know, there aren't any practitioners left at all. No, quite the opposite uh, but it's interesting to see someone's uh, take on this music and also to link it back to Alice Coltrane and to American jazz musicians and composers Sonny Rollins was hugely responsive to India when he visited India yeah. and he got into yoga but also was really interested in uh, different forms of Indian music again as somebody who's not I don't have a kind of scholarly appreciation of this but as a jazz fan one of the things I pick up on is improvisation yeah and there's something about the music where it does kind of fit with Alice Coltrane, where yes. Alice Coltrane's head was at. She was a brilliant improviser, but she was a brilliant improviser with the harp. Yes. She was a harpist. Yes. I mean, she's basically the only virtuoso jazz harpist, certainly, yes. you know, in the, in the popular imagination. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's a kind of musical form which, if you're quite iconoclastic, or if you are trying to experiment mm. and improvise and do new things, it gives you this tremendous, it's a, again, this thing of freedom. Yes. It opens this door, it gives yes. you enormous musical but and creative freedom. Much like the film, and so there's a lot of interesting interplay here about with the old and the new, but also the idea that the, the, the new can't really exist without the old. Because uh, especially listening to um, the track, The Inner Light, where you can hear George and these Indian musicians sort of communicating yeah, so with each other. Ago, yeah. um, it's sort of interesting that the, the, the reason why these Indian musicians were just able to 
uh, get exactly what he was talking about and also just the legendary <laughs> names uh, Pandit uh, Shiv Kumar Sharma um, Ravi Shankar um, uh, Pandit Hari Prasad Chaurasia um, but also all of the other musicians that the only reason they're just able to sort of extemporize and sort of understand where George was coming from is because these musicians have been you know it's it's a it's a craft these ragas these these songs uh, these techniques have been passed down through them for centuries so this sort of extemporization is only possible because these people are well they're virtuosos and also that tradition is kind of yeah, it's living absolutely. in them it's flowing yeah. through them yeah wow well i never i genuinely did not expect that we'd find Wonderwall and Wonderwall Music, yeah, the album. Either. Such a, a kind of what rich a fantastic surprise. source of ideas. Uh, I've, and this is only the first part, because in part two, we're going to look at Joe Massett's other psychedelic G-Jaw, Zachariah, mm. the first electric western. So we're not leaving the world of Joe Massett. Oh, no, no, no. But I really have appreciated this opportunity to explore this music with you, Shruti. Um, it's kind of an odd thing to say given that we live together yeah. but through making these podcasts and then sharing this with our audience and also for me particularly the process of editing these programs one of the things I've really enjoyed about making this program is to hear all the names and all the words said correctly uh, and also in the context of the the beauty and the precision of the music as well yes that's been an absolute treat. Uh, it was a joy listening to this album. The film I, is interesting, but again, like I said, a bit of a head scratcher for me. But I genuinely had, uh, I had no idea the the sort of rich, sort of history and the richness yes. of the material um, and the weight behind it. It was an education for me as well. So absolute delight. And I think we'll find when we look at Zachariah. The Firesign Theatre, who made Zachariah with Joe Massett, who were this very, very interesting uh, improvisational acting performance troupe, enmeshed with the counterculture, enmeshed with the free speech movement in Berkeley, they're kind of the, the dramatic equivalent of jazz improvisation, yes. of the kind of improvisational uh, currents that you have in Hindustani classical music. That's the great thing about the 60s, is this period of experimentation, trying new things, yes. making stuff up as they went along. Uh, and while both these films, Wonderwall and Zachariah, are a bit of an acquired taste, you get this very strong sense of the energy of the period. Yes. And I think for that reason, it's worth people not only listening to George Harrison's album, which is wonderful, but watch the film, watch the movie, it's good fun. Uh, I think just just to finish, I think it's just uh, the uh, film and the soundtrack and everything that we, we talked about um, just shows why, why that decade is still so influential. It really just represents everything that was best about that period. This part one has been a great delight. And as I was saying, I enjoy listening to you pronouncing words correctly. Perhaps you could end this part one of this Music for Films box set about Joe Massett's films by wishing us well in Gaelic. Well, I will try my best. Um, cheery, agus tapaleiv a chardin.
When George Harrison came to me, I didn't know what to think. But I found he really wanted to learn. I never thought our meeting would cause such an explosion. That Indian music would suddenly appear on the pop scene. It's peculiar. But out of this, a real interest is growing. Our podcast is More Music for Films, and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. Music